Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Tennis podcasting in studio guest today, Pat McEnroe, has made his way down to Lower Manhattan and uh, is going to spend some time with us here on the banks of the Hudson. You, of course, know Patrick as a former top 30 player, number three in doubles, is that right? And a longtime ESPN broadcaster. So, uh, good conversation coming up here with Patrick. Um, you'll notice that we're taping this after we spoke to just to really make sure it was a good conversation, but I can vouch for that. Uh, we talk shop. We talk a little bit about uh, state of the game, how to get more American kids involved, and what it was like growing up McEnroe. Uh, so here's Patrick. Thanks for coming down. That's, uh, this that's is a good nice, effort. This I appreciate is a nice that. setup you have here. Very, it's, it's, it's impressive. This is media yep. in 2019. Listen, we got to do what we got to do. It's um, changing times here. But uh, no, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming in. I th- you know what I thought I would I would pump you full of gas before we uh started in earnest okay now that you're here i'll tell you a story which i had a business lunch right before wimbledon the guy says oh you you cover tennis do you know mcenroe (laughs) and you assume this is someone who says uh oh yeah i used to love mcenroe and borg and i don't follow tennis anymore and right what he those were the days. Those were the days, exactly. Right. And uh, I don't know any of these foreign Tennis players' names. Now. Right. Um, that's what I was bracing myself for. Right. He was not at all a fan, but he went to Trinity. Okay. And he said he went to Trinity on account of a McEnroe family scholarship. Oh, wow. I don't think he knew huh. your brother's name. Really? He knew you. Okay. And he did not want me to use his name, but he said it was okay if I told the story. But he's uh, eternally grateful. And he was said he a the tennis player? Did he play no, tennis? No, no. He didn't oh, know anything about tennis. He got in on a no. scholarship. This guy, I don't know. Your family had, mm-hmm. he said, you you and your brothers were all very nice to him. Yes. And I think there was an endowed scholarship that enabled this wow. gentleman, who's now a, a titan in business, to go to Trinity. 
Um, so uh, support our uh, scholarship kids at our academy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can. Well, we'll give you the name now. afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's funny. Well, yeah. we can talk about that later. But yeah, now you're uh, yeah, now you're in fundraising with. But you're uh, no seriously. You're uh, the McEnroe family made quite an impression on uh, on Trinity. Well, they even my brother's kids went there, and uh, I moved out of the city. But who knows? You went there, though, right? I did. I, 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 should, I, should, wait, I, should, I should point this yeah. out. I should have said yeah, this, I went too. There, I went there through high school, and John, uh, John went for four years. Our, our other brother, Mark, went for two years because he had tried boarding school for a little bit, didn't like it, came back, actually loved Trinity. I went for four years, uh, only had to commute one year from Queens. John Ooh. commuted four years. That's a, that's a schlep. Four years on the uh, LIRR and then on the subway, uh, two and three train, 96th Street, which I did for a year. And in fact, my freshman year of high school, I played basketball. I always played soccer all through uh, high school, as did John. Know. Yeah, played on the high school team four years, even while I was, you know, number two or three in the country in tennis. And then uh, one year I played the freshman year I played on the basketball team, but I wasn't particularly good in basketball, so I was on the freshman team. So I had to go in the morning to practice before school. So I had to get on the train at pitch black at whatever, 5.45 in the morning at LIRR and take the, you know, do the train. It was an hour commute each way. Got mugged on the way to basketball practice one morning on Amsterdam Avenue and like 93rd Street because I used to zigzag from 96 and Broadway to get to 91st and Columbus. I was not pleased. That's uh, yeah. I mean, we, we should point out to you. I mean, first of all, yeah. this this is a this is a private school, but you, yes. you do not sound like uh, this is entitled private school experience. But also you guys grew up. Basically, east of the tennis. I'm saying for the fans right. out there, you you grew up east of the tennis center, and this is on the west side of Manhattan. Exactly. This is so we uh, grew up in Queens, you know, which was uh, sort of the end of Queens, but it was really more like a Long Island kind of suburban little town. But it was a nice, you know, middle to upper class town that we lived in. My dad uh, had become a law uh, an attorney and became a partner at his law firm. That enabled my parents to move into the nice part of Douglaston called Douglas Manor. They used to live in Flushing and when they first started, when they first got married in an apartment. And then on the other side of Northern Boulevard was, you know, sort of a middle class area. And then when my dad became a partner at Paul Weiss, big law firm, which he worked for his whole life, they moved to the manor, which is where we learned how we got into tennis. Because the Douglaston Club had five tennis courts. And in the summertime, you could pick, wanted to do like swimming or sailing or a, uh, or tennis and John, believe it or not, was eight or nine when he picked up tennis, which is pretty old. To that's become late a, for yeah, uh, for late to become right, a pro. Right. Forget about number one, and so that's how we uh, got into tennis. And uh, no, we should point out John is seven, what seven years here? Senior, uh, right? Seven, uh, seven years. Yeah, six and a half, seven. Yeah, seven and a half actually. Yeah, he's just turned sixty. As long as you brought up John, yes. I will say one of the great upsets in tennis. Right. John McEnroe had a younger brother. Right. Who carved out an identity for himself? I mean, people are literally like, <laughs> right. "Oh, I always forget Patrick is right. John's younger right. brother." Patrick was a decent player. Right? No, but I'm, yeah. I, don't, I don't mean tennis. I mean, oh. I, I mean, you, I don't mean as a player necessarily. Okay. I mean, you okay. you've managed to uh, that's a, that's a hell that's a considerable shadow that you've uh, managed to step out. Well, of. it it helped me along the way. Um, it was a burden, you know, at times, obviously, even as a player. Um, but I think it certainly helped me get my opportunities in in TV. And in radio, et cetera, it certainly helped me get an opportunity first with ESPN and at CBS. Actually, when John recommended me to CBS at the U.S. Open right after Vetus had suddenly died, because Vetus was doing amazing, right, it was great right, on TV. Right. And so when Vetus passed away sort of suddenly, uh, 
um, they were looking for someone to sort of you know replace him. And I had just started doing some stuff for ESPN because uh, I had come off a couple I had a couple shoulder surgeries, so I was sort of dabbling in television. So John recommended to Bob Monsbach, who now works with you guys at Tennis Channel, who's a longtime mm-hmm. man at CBS. He said, "Why don't you try my brother?" So that was sort of my first, you know, foray into doing the U.S. Open when I worked for CBS. And that wasn't long. You you, you didn't have the five years at well, I was there management for f- consulting, saying, "What am I doing?" Yeah, you, uh, yeah, no, I was there for a few years at um, CBS until uh, until I sort of went full time with ESPN. But um, but but I feel I feel like you really, and I don't know if this was by accident or design. I don't think people see you as John McEnroe's younger brother per se. I mean, I think you've really. It may, may have been in the beginning. You may have, you know, I imagine it was a benefit, but also you need to sometimes a millstone. You need to follow me around to, to come to the airports and stuff when people say, are you? Are you uh, they see the last they name. The and name, uh, yeah. yeah, so that's normal. Uh, but I, I thank you for saying that. I think in, in our world, our little media world of tennis and et cetera, I think I've uh, earned my reputation, you know, by able to do multiple things over the years, which I always strive to do, to do, to do more, to be able to do different uh, roles. So I think that uh, all my experience uh, has paid off. I wonder, I mean, we don't have to turn this into uh, the therapist couch, but (laughs) temperamentally, um, I think most people would agree. A little different. A little different? Yeah, a little Um, different, Yeah, but that was even true growing up. Is that right? Yeah, and I think, I'll tell you this one quick story, because it it did, I was a little bit of a baby playing tennis as a kid, which is not uncommon for any good junior player, you know, as a 12, 13, 14-year-old. And so John was actually... You know, he had his moments, but he was basically a pretty tame junior player until, you know, stuff happened at Wimbledon when it, when things blew up and he became super Brad, et cetera. But when I was 14, I was 14 or 15, I played in the National Clay Courts in Knoxville, Tennessee. And um, no, it was in Knoxville, Nashville, Tennessee. Oh. So I was a, you know, yeah. fairly highly ranked national player. And uh, I was playing in a round of 16 or quarterfinal match, something like that. And um, the photographer came out onto the court, and they just let him, you know, walk right onto the court. There's no rules or anything. So this camera person is sitting there right by the, uh, literally on uh, at the middle of the court, not doing anything, no pictures. So I'm winning like six two, no problem. Second set, I'm up, I'm up five three. All of a sudden, the other guy starts coming back. I start, you know, losing some points, getting frustrated. So, you know, I take my racket and kind of, you know, slam it on the ground. All of a sudden, I hear click, click, you know, I hear the guy taking a bunch of pictures. You know, I'm making faces and all that. So uh, I, win the ma- I ended up winning the match in a tie break in the second set. So I move on to the next round. And the next day, I come out. I'm staying in the dorms at Vanderbilt. That's where okay. we stayed. And uh, the front page of the Tennessean, you know, the big paper in Nashville has a, uh, the title, Oh, Brother. Oh, and to me slamming my racket, <laughs> you know. And so my dad always said, you you can't be, be like your brother because uh, they're watching you and they're paying attention. You know, you can't do that. And of course, he used to yell at John. And then we, John and I always laugh about it. Oh, gee, I wonder where John got his temper. My dad, <laughs> how could you do that? You know. So, um, so that, but that did impact me as a kid. You're a junior player. I was a junior ju- player, right. and I, I had a little bit of a temper, but I was more mild mannered generally than John, which is partly why I wasn't as good as a player. I wasn't as quick either. That was the other part. But then, um, you know, that did sort of, I did realize that I was being watched a lot more as a kid coming up as right, a junior. Right. So I think it did impact me a bit in the way I sort of behaved on the on the tennis court. Um, I again, I'll. I'll Reiterate, uh, I think it's remarkable how I, I don't think people see you as 
anything other than Patrick McEnroe. So uh, well, I, I guess, commend I you I guess on that. that's good. Thank you. Um, I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So your summer, we're whatever, two, two weeks after Wimbledon. Yep. What's your summer like? Uh, summer for me is uh, working at the tennis academy, the Mac- John McEnroe Tennis Academy here at Randall's Island. So I, I, I don't, I'm not as present in the summer there as I am all year. I'm actually there a lot during sort of the, our school year, which is our main focus for uh, most of our kids. We have a, you know a big summer program too. So, but in the summer I have a little more leeway with my schedule. So obviously family time. Although my my girls are all away at sleepaway camp. My wife's a singer. She's been quite busy uh, performing, so I went to Cape Cod with her. She had some shows there. Nice. She was in D.C. this past weekend, Washington, D.C. Uh, so we sort of juggle. You know, I go up to see my twins at camp this weekend, upstate New York, and then I bring them home. And then uh, the only uh, really TV responsibility I have for the summer is to do the Canadian Open in Canada. Uh, I usually do Cincinnati as well, but we're taking a little family trip to Italy at the end of the summer before the madness of the u.s open i think tuscany well tuscany t- tuscany over the uh, yeah, over little. over king's island yeah <laughs> is that what you're saying it's tough to it's a tough Great one, priorities yeah. you got there you know, the food you know it's tough you got uh got applebee's on the applebee's side. i always love that tournament right. though for that reason tournament. i always say that it's great to see these players remove from oh, their I comfort know. zone and oh, totally like you're used to these you know london and paris and yeah right it's like gotta go deal with feliciano lopez is walking barefoot through the cracker barrel parking lot on the way to the marriott um so I figure, you know what, I've, I I get bombarded with these tennis questions. Right. And they're great. It's whatever. It's great. It's, yeah, it's, like you're really, I mean, you get a good one, especially on your mail. Your, your no, mail but it's like, it's, yeah. you know what, it's a great sort of pulse of the tennis right. fan. Right, So um, here are some of the things they, they're asking these days, okay. and you, you have at it. So right. one of them, I, we're, what is today? Tuesday. Uh, Coco Goff is about an hour right. from taking the court. Right. What do we think of um, the some of the restrictions placed on her schedule? I think they're okay in general. I mean, I think she's going to – She has, to me, she has plenty of opportunities. I mean, you could – if uh, let me tell you one thing. If my dad were here, who was the ultimate, like, you know, personal freedom and, you know, from a, yeah, lo- dad's legal a great libertarian, perspective. Exactly. Yeah, total libertarian. Right, right. Like, he used to argue with – I used to argue with him about the ATP. How could they make the players play X number of tournaments? This is right. against the law. 
So it's probably against the law, probably. But I think, you know, all sports have certain rules and age limits, whether it's, you know, the college guy, you know, coming through the NFL to get into the NFL. So I think in general, you can work around it. You know, Coco Goff is going to work around it. She seems like she has great parents that are supportive of her. She's obviously an amazing talent and, you know, worked around. So she had to play qualies in D.C. Right. So she got a couple extra matches. The tournament is like, thank goodness. Wow, they got great crowds on the weekend. She wins a couple matches. She's in the tournament. It's all good. So to me, it's not even it's not to me. It's not really worth going down this road of arguing. Is it you know, in in her case, do you make an exception? Let her you know, let, let she doesn't have to play every week. She can play whatever, 12 or 14. I mean, they have all these sorts of. Uh, variables. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the thing. It's not like she can't. Pe- people, right? I mean, she can still play. She's enough. banned oh. from playing. She's not banned from she's playing. Not banned. She's just, you know. And I think the WTA is trying to, you know, trying to do the right thing, right, to help. And the fact of the matter is that even in the in the women's game, as we're seeing in the men's game, you know, players are playing longer, and it's it's not, you know, teen sensations winning majors, even right. on the women's side, like it used to be. You know, when Martina Hinkis and no, you're you right, know, winning majors right. at 15. Uh, it's unlikely that that's going to happen on a regular basis. So I think for the long-term protection of the player in the sport, I think it's good. Um, no, father of a daughter as well. You envision, you know, sort of hard not to think about your own kid in that position. You don't want, uh, you don't want a kid no, playing. I don't uh, think so. You don't want him doing, want doing all that. that. No. Um, what's another, so Novak Djokovic, what does he do so well? Gotten that one in a different number what of different he do forms. Do so well. No, but how, when you, you know, it's easy to explain Federer, right? right. Oh, it's this balletic tennis, and just watch him, and you can see the. I think artistry. it's easier to explain Djokovic. Nadal's actually. got the. Oh, really? Right. I think it's easier to explain Djokovic because what he does is he plays like the ultimate percentage tennis. So, like if you if you yeah. see him, if a shot's coming to Djokovic, I could predict before he hits it, ninety eight times out of a hundred where he's going to hit the next ball, because he's like he's like a machine. But he has such unbelievable um, movement skills, flexibility, timing, that he can basically put the ball exactly where he wants it. But he does it. You know, Federer is a little unpredictable, which is partly what makes him so f- great to watch right. and, and right. so explosive. And it's also what kind of hurt him in the Wimbledon final is because he knew he had to play that unpredictable tennis. And when it got down to, like, the crunch time and the tie breaks – that was too ended up being too high risk at those moments because Djokovic is so solid, his balls will get a little more depth. He can pull you a little wider. He doesn't give up as much court as an Andy Murray as a Nadal does on a mm-hmm. on a quicker court. Um, so to me, he's almost like the perfect, perfectly structured tennis player. His movement, his technique, his decision making. You know when he's on. Basically, he can just contr- – it's, like it's like a ball control offense, you know, Joe Montana in his prime. Dink, dink, you yeah, know right, where he's yeah, going right, to go, but he right. can't stop exactly. it. Exactly, right. Because, because it's, it's, so, it's so well executed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so well executed, and he has all the, the physical tools to be able to do it consistently and do it better than anyone else. Did you see that um, – I think it was uh, your buddy, uh, the New York Times guy, Ben Rothenberg, t- posted something uh, on Twitter – a couple of days after the Wimbledon final, the comparison of match point, Federer against Murray when okay. Federer won it. Right. And then Federer against Djokovic, the 40-30 point. 
Right. So it was really interesting because it showed the two videos side by side. Oh, right, right. Oh, and I it was the exact same yeah, play. Exactly. It was the same point. It was the same them, point, right, right. but the difference was the, the yeah. execution of Federer's two shots was not quite as good. Right. And the movement and the court positioning of Djokovic was exponentially better. Right. No, it was a lot no, better than Murray. Than Murray, I mean, no, it was, was you know he was his right. balance was so much better. Right, right, he didn't right. give his, uh, up as much court. His positioning was better. His techniques a little better. It was kind of cool to see that difference because to me that sort of sums up why Djokovic is Djokovic. Right. No, that it was it was the yeah. exact same type of point. Exact and, same um, point. Forehand, a serve down the tee, stretch your opponent to the to the middle, and then run around inside in forehand approach to the forehand corner. Didn't hit it quite as well, but Djokovic was in perfect position because he returns a little earlier. His balance is better. He doesn't stumble right. after the return, and um, that's why the passing shot looked routine for him, even though it was well, match that's, point. That's everyone said, oh, right. it was such a shabby Easy. approach, and anyone you make you that still approach, make you're, it. Right. you're down match point you at Wimbledon. Right. You still have to execute Very that Very easy to miss shot. that shot. Yeah. Um, well, I, we talked about last week. The other thing was that, that 40-15 serve. What he just missed. That he missed yeah. by yeah. two inches. Yeah, because he hit two aces that game. So you go from – 21 majors to 15 versus 20. To, that's that's well, two inches and a two major swing right you there. You know, I got a lot of um, response from my comment because, you know, at that stage of the match, you know, we you try not to say anything, basically, when you're commentating on the match. So we came back from commercial, and uh, both my brother and I and Chris Fowler, you know, really been trying to pull back at that point, obviously. But I, I, the comment I made was, was right before Federer was going to serve for the match. And I said, and I actually said, I can't believe I'm saying this, but this feels like the biggest game of Federer's life. Really? Yeah. And I don't know why I said that. Why'd you say that? I said that because of what you just said. It rem- because I felt that if he could win this Wimbledon, get to 21, hold off Djokovic a little longer, Finally, he's never done it. Beat Nadal and, and Djokovic in, in a major. Right. And because no one's stopping Djokovic except Nadal or Federer, right, in right. the next couple of years. Okay, maybe one we'll of these. About, you know, yeah, yeah, right, right. But I mean, it's certain there's no proof that anyone else is going to stop him I from, think, from catching him and right. passing him. And so to me, that That's was really interesting. It, I, and I still, to win Wimbledon for Federer at, at about to be 38. And do it against the See, two. That, to me, to me a was big one. that's well, all those things combined. Right. That's why I said made that comment. So if he if he makes that first serve, if he wins Wimbledon, then it's twenty one. Twenty one. It's, it's, it's nine Wimbledons. It's yeah. Djokovic. But also, he won his first Wimbledon in two thousand three. Right. So, so that's a sixteen right. year gap. So that would exactly. mean if you want to play the longevity card, right? Djokovic would have to win in twenty twenty four. Right. The sixteen it, year gap major, when he right. won the exactly. two thousand eight Australian Open. Australian first Open, yeah. one. So. Yeah. Uh, which seems unlikely based on the way he plays, just because it's so much movement based and, you know, precision based. Whereas, right. but I mean, look, Federer has been able to do it, and you know, obviously Djokovic is as good of an athlete as Federer and, and takes care of himself in the same way. But uh, to see Federer play at that level at this age, I mean, just to see the final, the way these guys, right? To me, like watching even the, just the first set, sitting there and watching it, I'm thinking to myself. These guys know that every single shot they hit has to be played with so much precision. Not perfect, but precise, because if they don't play it that well, they're, they're, they're in big trouble on the next shot. 
and they can get away with that against pretty much any other right. player. Play so offensive tennis, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they just yeah. kind of elevated each other. Like I'm watching, if Federer doesn't hit a slice, just the right spot with just amount of spin low enough, he's going to get cooked. He's not going to lose on the next shot, but he's going to be on defense. And it was just watching right. those two guys go at it is just a, it was phenomenal to see. What do you think? So, Someone an interesting point to me. They said if this is a first-time finalist, it's like this is Milos Raonic. Or, right. This is a, the crack of your life. I mean, this is it. This is your going to the Hall of Fame. This is going to be your career epitaph. Like, in the grand scheme of things, what's the day? Disappointing loss for Federer. I'm sure he was crushed afterwards, but it's 20 versus 21. If Djokovic loses that match, 16 versus 15. They, I mean, they said, listen, these guys, what's the pressure for these guys? They're in this goat race, and that's right, fine. But right. the guy who has pressure is the one who knows his whole legacy is going to rest on whether he wins this match or not. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some truth to that. And I think that's, the, I think that's partly why these guys can play at such a high level you know, in these matches because they've done it so many times. And it's not, you know, Federer's always been able to sort of brush off the losses. You know, like it's not, you know, because we've done this for years. I mean, when he lost in uh, to Raonic, you know, whatever it was four or five years ago when he had the back yeah, you know, right, problem. Right, and it was right. like, when, knee, you know, yeah. we were like, oh, this could, be, uh, this could be the last time we see him at Wimbledon. I mean, you, who knew? So who knew that five <laughs> right. years later, somehow you, you, in retrospect, you feel like he knew. Like somehow it's like he... He, everyone panics, all us media experts and former players go, oh, this could be it. I mean, this was his chance. And he's like, yeah, it's just another match. Right. And that's been right. partly the reason why he's, he's, he's been able to last so long. But still, uh, it's, it's, it's still, I mean, I remember, you know, my brother said to me one time when he lost in final, you know, years later when we talked about it one day, when he lost to Lendl, you know, in the French Open final, which was his most devastating loss. And I remember we went out because I was playing in the juniors, junior uh, oh, doubles yeah. final, believe right. it or not, against Boris Becker. Is that me right? And, me and Luke Jensen. Yeah. Well, that's a good, yeah, uh, that's yeah, good yeah. trivia. Right There's there. another good story related to that. But I'll just tell you this point, which was that John's, I said to John that night, because I'm a 17-year-old kid, I'm thinking, oh, my brother's number one in the world. You know, he dominated the whole rest of that year. Oh, you're going to have another chance. You know, this is, you're, you're going to have plenty more chances. This was my chance, he said. Really? This was, he goes, this was my shot. And I blew it. And, with that, and, and it was like he knew, which is, I think, what differentiates him, which is what makes these guys now, to me, seem it blows your mind. Because even though Federer's had these moments, you know, match point at the U.S. Open, when you would think, God, how could this guy sleep at night? Right. And he comes back and he just kind of brushed it off. Like John never could brush that off. Because obviously clay wasn't his best surface. Right, right. So he knew that. He knew probably if it was Wimbledon, he would have said it differently. But he knew that like that was like the, everything was lined up for him to win that match, and he didn't do it. And he said, you know, you have to have that mindset as a player that this is it, this is my shot. And I think that's what separates like a great champion like him from you know other players that just kind of, oh well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Like there's something about these great players that. They can they can seize the moment, but the, and yet uh, and yet John won Wimbledon that league. You know, four four well, weeks later, John he's dominated. winning. Uh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. that was grass. And he won the U.S. And the US Open. Open. Right. He won the U.S. Right. Open too. But the French Open was the right. one. You know, that he'll still really say to this day that's the match that you know that he that keeps him up at night. The um, I mean, I think part of the story you you alluded to it already. Part of the story, these three guys are pick your adjective. They're incredible. They're amazing. Right. It's a golden era. Um, you wish there were a little more resistance by. The rest of the field. Um, so let me ask you: If, if Sasha Zverev called you this afternoon and said, "I need a coach," 
What would you say? Well, I'm not. I'm not really. Uh, I don't mean. Interview what? What uh, I mean, would what I say to him? What he needs to do? Yeah. What do you make? Well, I mean, I watch him and I feel like he just gives up way too much court. I mean, I and I. He's he's so far back. Now we now against ninety percent of the players, that's good enough. Right. But the problem is like you're not you you're not playing to be play ninety beat ninety percent of if you want to be a champion, you have to like develop. I even Federer at the Labor Cup, he went up because I was there you know as a coach. John's right, a right, captain, right. and la- and and literally I heard Federer go up to him and said, "You need to when you hit a big ball, you need to move up, like you need to cut the court off." And so I don't know what Lendl was doing. Not, and maybe the kid just is reluctant to do it. I know, you know, Lendl did an unbelievable job with Murray, helped him in a lot in so many ways mm-hmm. get over the hump. And you thought that would be a nice mix, but I never saw Zverev looking to like try to implement that in his game. You know, he can serve big as he did in the London final indoors, two out of three sets. Okay, I mean, he's an amazing ball striker, but he to me he hasn't learned how to like actually make things easier on himself and team same thing on a faster surface right you know on clay he's obviously awesome uh but when i watched that french open final i was there uh in the crowd just watching and i'm like nadal not only is he like this incredible physical specimen and he can you know the top spin obviously is why he has been able to do what he's been able to do on clay but like just watching him cut the court off Nadal. Like, Nadal. Like, yeah, watching exactly. him, you know, set one ball up, but predict where the next one's going to go, take it early. He didn't do that, like, 12 years ago. Right. But he, So he's adapted. He's adjusted. He's gotten better. And so is Roger. And so is Djokovic. And these guys, you know, they're not even – it's almost like the distance – the gap has grown. What do you think that is? I mean, the, the court positioning stuff is really interesting to me. Nadal against Roger – Right was apparently playing way too far, and Moya. I mean, this this was something that had been discussed on, in on, advance on grass. Yeah, on grass, yeah. and and basically, I don't, is, I don't know. I think Uncle Tony said this. Basically, it was a function of nerves. Then the doll sort of retreated to his comfort spot, and right, they were about all in the semis. Yeah, they were all encouraging him to play up, and he knew that was the game plan, and he just he couldn't, couldn't stick it. to it because right. he was well, in his comfort you zone. You know, on on clay, he'd be fine. Yeah, uh, probably on a slow hard court, he'd probably be fine. But grass is, you know, it's still. Difficult, you know, for him. It's not his favorite surface. Uh, he still plays well on it, uh, and that's why I say Djokovic is technically the most because Djokovic is is is, is can do all those subtle little things with really no difference in his swing or his preparation. Yeah, right. it's not a big adjustment for, for him Nadal. It's yeah. a big adjustment right. to move in to move way in. Obviously, on clay, he can do whatever he wants because he's so much juice on his ball. There's so much, you know, explosion off the court with his normal shot. That I've never, no one's ever seen anything like it. That's why he's able to dominate on clay, and he's improved those other things. But you know, Djokovic strikes the ball cleaner off both sides. Doesn't hit it as big off the forehand when he has time, but he strikes the ball more efficiently than anybody I've ever seen. He's like Agassi, hit the ball bigger off both wings than anyone I've ever seen. Just pure boom, strike Just the ball. Moment of impact. Yeah. Moment of impact. Could, you know, and he could hit bigger than Djokovic. But he can't maneuver the ball as well, and obviously nowhere near the athlete that Djokovic is. Right. You think Andre hit a bigger ball than Djokovic? I think Andre consistently hit a bigger ball, yes. Hit it bigger, thumped it, could take it a little earlier. But because he knew that he couldn't play as good a defense, you know, he wasn't a great defender, he wasn't explosive mover in the way that Djokovic is, so he had to play that, you know, play a little bit bigger. Djokovic doesn't have to. I find the gyrations of Djokovic's career pretty wild too you know he has this breakout 2008 australian open right and then 
retreats and remember Roddick and the bird flu. I mean, the basically oh, right. the, the book on him was push it, push him a little bit and he'll, right, he'll, crack, he'll quit yeah. on you. He'll yeah. crack. Well, on he you. had some issues there. I mean, definitely had that issue with his endurance, with the heat, whatever it was, the diet, fix that. You know, when I was Davis Cup captain, we went to Serbia. Uh, or oh, right, right. Yeah, played right, there. Right. He was three in the world at that point, and he was, he was going through the service yips. So we were playing an indoor clay in Serbia. We had Isner, Isner played singles, and I believe Query played singles, and both playing, you know, pretty good level at that point. And I'm telling you, the amount of pressure on Djokovic from that crowd in Serbia was more it was like it was almost like violent like how intense it was like the like if he lost I mean who knows what could have happened right I mean that's like that's the vibe like you felt from the crowd so not only that but plus he I mean he was literally double faulting one to two times a game and 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 like you know our guys for them played pretty well we're in the match you know I think one one match might even gone five Mm -hmm. sets one was four and and I remember Jay Berger, who was my uh, coach, who was my assistant, and we were like, man, if that guy could serve. <laughs> I mean, you know, if that guy didn't have the service yet, I mean, who knows what, how good he could be. And then, he, f- you know, he cleaned that up. He figured that out. Right. So he's gone through these different – then he had the thing, obviously. Well, yeah, the two-year – I mean, this right, was – two-year sabbatical. Look, look at yeah. his record. Yeah. In the, the, you know, so Nadal would go two-year, but he'd be injured. He'd get right. to a final. And, right. And Roger's been pretty – you know, Roger's had a couple of – Stretches, but again, he'd be in the. He'd still be in I the mean, mix. Fif- Fifteen right. months ago, Djokovic wasn't a top twenty. He was twenty one in the world, right? And he went to Wimbledon, right? right. Yeah. I mean, that's just. Well, he lost it mentally, and you know the personal problems that he talked about, and you know we can speculate mm-hmm. on exactly, but you know what his issues, whatever they were, personal, and then he obviously had an injury to the elbow, so those things. To me, it was more the personal stuff that he just his mind just right. you know wasn't there. Um, and the way he plays, you know, he plays with a lot of precision, and he plays, you know, if he's a little off, as we saw in, s- in some of these matches, you know, he can miss a lot. But that uh, obviously is not happening now. I just think it's, if people say, well, if a couple of match points here and there, and Roger would have 24 majors, and I'm right. thinking a couple of little tinkers here and there, and right. if Djokovic right. could just as easily Yeah, he, he might right. be a 24 already. Yeah. Um, when you – I asked Robbie – I don't know if you know Robbie. You know Robbie Koenig, Ro- I'm sure. Yeah, sure. yeah good Absolutely. guy. Um, I asked him the same question. I mean, just sort of step back, and we, we get out of our media chamber. Right. You like where the sport is overall? I like the athleticism of the sport. I think that uh, I think there's a lot of characters. Unfortunately, not that many of them are American at the top of the men's game. So that's right. hurt us in this country. I think if you look at the global nature of the sport, it's, it's really healthy. And obviously, you look at the majors. I mean, they just get bigger and bigger. So do the Masters event have gotten bigger and more popular. So I think at that level, the, the game is in great shape. I think the players are playing at a level that's extraordinary. Um, I think the, the Wimbledon and the ATP and the, you know, the U.S. Opens have – and the Australian Open when we saw those you know, crazy six-hour matches with Nadal and Djokovic and Verdasco. I think they've made adjustments with the conditions, the balls – the speed of the court that have helped right. you know to me Wimbledon like to me Wimbledon was different this year the balls were staying unbelievably low if you hit it short it bo- the ball was dying I played in the senior thing which is obviously you know like slow motion but just to hit on the courts you could tell you could tell the difference the big difference the surface or the balls uh I thought it was a surface I know some players say it was the balls and you know they would know better than I do but to me it was like the if you didn't really hit the ball um, and it sort of landed in the middle of court, the ball was like dying. So that's why I think you saw you know, Federer using the slice a lot more, right. the ball staying low. To me, that's interesting because it shows, it, it, you know, 
basically what to me it shows is who has more skill, who has more tennis skill. And I think Wimbledon realized that as opposed to making it, you know, when it was super fast yeah, just, and it was just boom offense. serving. Yeah. And then, then it got slow or slower with a high bounce. And it's like, okay, this is like starting to look like a hard court. So where can we balance it now? So now you play with a, you got to play with a little slice. It rewards people for being able to do different things right. and move in a different way. And I think that's really healthy. For, yeah, it's really fun to watch, I think. You're okay with 12-all? Uh, I'm okay with it, yeah. I thought um, you know, it was interesting this year that it was just a final where it happened in singles anyway. Uh, but I liked 12-all I liked for Wimbledon because I think, especially for the men in, in the final set, there are going to be less breaks in general than there are other services. So I think having that sort of one extra set to me is a right. Yeah, it's, a, it's an extra set. Yeah, it's an extra set. Yeah, it was wild. It it was wild. The first right. two hundred, whatever it is, right. two hundred fifty-three matches, Crazy. and it didn't come yeah. into play. And yeah. um, we'll go back to what you're saying about the Americans. I was actually, I had a corporate thing with John. Right. We were talking a little bit about curious. Right. And what do you do? And is, are the pressures different if he's American? And mm-hmm. if he were from Tuscaloosa, would it be a right. completely different dynamic? Um, sort of a. Are we past the point of we're never going to have what we had 25 years right. ago, right? We're never going to have no. six of the top ten guys. No. Um, I would we, say never. You never know. I mean, it could it could come around, but probably what not. has to happen? Well, all right. What I don't has, think any country. What will. has to happen? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't think any country. Well, too, well, what what has to out. happen for the U.S. to have two well, top ten players? I mean, it's it's well. I think actually we're going to have a shot. I mean, I think between Fritz, Opelka, and Tiafo, I think they all have a shot to be top ten. Do they have a shot to win majors consistently? Probably not. Because each of them have flaws, you know, whether it's Tiafo's, the forehand, you know, the stroke right. production. Fritz is not a great athlete. He's a great tennis player, not a great athlete. Opelka's, you know, so big that he's going to break down. Right. But when you look at what they can bring to the table, I think it's pretty solid. Now, that being said, you, you look at the, t- the guys at the top. And, I mean, these guys are just, you know, they're the best athletes on the planet or some of the best athletes on the planet. So it's very simple. In my years at USTA, yeah, going into the, the tournaments, yeah. you know, going to the junior tournament, I have a uh, here's this this is what sums it up for me, okay, and I know I'm generalizing and you can you know nitpick it if you want, but generally speaking, here's the problem: you go to a junior tournament in the girls' twelves or fourteens, a national tournament, you will see bunch of good white girls you will see african-american girls you will see indian girls you will see asian girls you will see all different backgrounds not just of race or you know but of social social economic background okay you go to a boys tournament in general okay and um, and you can make of course an, an exception here or there but as one of my coaches told me when he went to the i called him when i was with the usda and I said, what do you see at the boys' national? He says, well, I see a lot of parents with Rolexes. Yeah, whiter, whiter than Buffalo in you know, February. So, so, you're, so you're getting – so the point is you're, we're getting the pick of the litter of, I think, athletes as women, as females. Coco Goffs, the Sloan Stevens is the world, Coco Vandeways of the world. Right. You know, CeCe Bellis, I know she's coming out injured, you know, unbelievably quick, athletic. You're getting those young girls more drawn to tennis. Because tennis is the only and you think one of the only sports where they can make it big and make a lot of money, okay. And, t- and as a boy, you know, if you're growing up in the South or in Florida or wherever, you know, here where we live, you know, lacrosse gets into college or you know, football, obviously basketball, baseball. So what happens is that with the the kids we get in tennis, unless there's some connection that's family related, 
that's Tiafo. That was sort of his because his dad was working at the place. Right. You know, Taylor Fritz's parents were professional tennis players. Opelka, you know, is sort of a freak physically. So you're getting you're not getting the pick of the litter. No, necessarily. that's what we always say. I mean, yeah. it's 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 crass and it's probably an overgeneralization. But people, you know, LeBron James at age eight, is already been diverted. Right. Exactly. To right. Football, baseball, well, basketball, someone, soccer. Yeah, someone who's a little, you know, six two, six three. Right. You know. Um, so that's uh, part of the issue. Um, do you? So yeah. let me ask you three questions. A, is it just economics that the WTA is the most lucrative sports league for women, but right. the ATP ain't for men? Mm-hmm. B, is it? I think I mean, that's part of it. Yes. Is it that? I mean, I there's, there's there's a tangent, but all of these college scholarships that are going to international players. Right. Takes away some incentive, and I think is something mm-hmm. that's really problematic. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Someone floated this to me. They said, "Just socialization. Boys want to be on teams, and it's bus rides, and mm. it's pranks, and it's you know, mm-hmm. butt slaps, and it's uh, it well, takes a really that, special yeah, but, person." But how come Rafael Nadal and Djokovic, you know, and all these guys from Europe are doing? Who had it? A ch- yeah, yeah. But yeah. someone, someone said it takes a really special kind of athlete to go out there and hit balls, hit five hundred forehands, right. yeah, a million balls. Right. That's a lot different than everyone's on the AAU basketball team and we're all it does flying take, to Las it does, Vegas. It, for, yeah, it does take a unique um, individual to want to do it. You know, to have the passion to to do it now. So how come girls? We're having more success, quote unquote, at the professional level with young women. Right. I don't know because they're pushed into it earlier. Are they more into? I don't know. Don't girls want to play on the softball team and lacrosse team too? I mean, or the soccer team? I mean, soccer is bigger than ever for you know, for women and for girls. So I, I'm not sure that's that's it. I mean, I do see that overall as a problem for tennis. Right. That for you know working at the academy and seeing our you know kids, whether they're boys or girls, you know, they kids generally want to be with other kids. And play with other kids. So I think that's, uh, you know, I can't, I'm not smart enough to know whether it's a male-female issue, if that's more relevant in, in, in tennis. Uh, why do we get the best uh, swimmers, though? You know, we have the best swimmers in the world. Right. And men and women. I mean, I mean there's obviously other countries, right. Australia, whatever. And, you know, gymnastics. We have great gymnasts, and especially female gymnastics, figure skating. It's an interest. No, I mean, uh, it, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good. It's it's a, I don't have the kind of thought. Actually, I don't. I yeah. mean, this is just something that was floated to me. Right. I mean, they don't like sort of specific to players. They said, "Look, Nick Kyrgios was born to be a team sport athlete, and you mm-hmm. put him in Labor Cup, and he's great, and he right. loves the locker room and the ambiance, and he's cheering, and he's doing cartwheels when someone hits a winner, right? And then you put him out there by himself. Yeah, I mean, he's a unique case. I think that generally, um, but I do think that this issue of uh, um, keeping the kids involved and keeping them interested when they're young. I mean, you know, ten, I remember years ago going to the March of Dimes luncheon when I was with the USTA and, you know, where they raise money for this great charity and all the sports people are there. And they honor every year a couple of athletes and a couple of business people in sports. So this per one particular year, they honored Michael Strahan, who had just retired, and he was going into his TV career. And uh, <clears throat> he got up and gave a great speech and um, – he talked, told the story of when he was his dad was in the military, and so he was a he was a an army kid, or and, okay. and he was in Germany. His dad was stationed in Germany, and Michael Strahan was like eighteen or nineteen. I didn't know this. All right. Yeah, and uh, they said to him he was out like they were playing soccer, and one of the you know so, someone in the on the on the base said, "Hey, hey man, have you ever tried football?" He'd never played organized football in his life. 
Okay. Is that right? Michael Strahan had never played oh, organized football. So he's like, sure. You know, and tried it, you know, became a Hall of Fame football player. And I turned to the, the, my, you know, the, the brass at the USDA and I said, herein lies the problem, right, for yeah. tennis. Because it's, it's impossible to get, no, forget about being, to be a college player, right, right. you know, unless you start tennis by the age of, you know, six or seven and play it a ton. Right. Now, not that's the only thing you Ten- do. Tennis you should, is hard. That's what I'm saying. Right. Tennis is right. very hard. Now working with kids the way I have, because this, what's been great about this job I'm doing the last few years at the academy is I'm actually on the court, you know, and working right. with kids, and which I wasn't really able to do when I was with the USTA. So working with kids, working with coaches, I'm like, man, how the hell? I mean, this is really hard. I mean, the most basic skills that you think are easy are very hard to learn and to teach. And it makes me realize that as a kid, you know, I spent hours and hours at the Douglaston Club, and they go full circle, hitting against the wall, playing against the wall, basically teaching myself. And, you know, kids don't have time for that. I mean, parents, you know, that's not the way our society works anymore, where you just let your kids go out and play. You know, now we got to have a group from, you know, four to six, and then from six to eight, and everybody's got to then get to right, homework. Right. You know, so everything's more, much more structured. And I think that makes it more difficult. And especially in a you know in, a, in an urban area like here, it makes it much more difficult for kids to basically get the reps. I like the idea That's of really putting on the wall. Right. Like I remember as a kid, like I used to play imaginary finals between Labor and Rosewall, and I would just go there for hours. So that takes a you know special kind of crazy. I mean, I love team sports too. I love, but I but I enjoyed that as being you know what would would help me become a good tennis player. That's really hard to imagine. It's really hard and, to uh, imagine people it? doing it now. Yeah, it's impossible it's to imagine. Go go play for five hours against the wall and be, be Roger Rafa. Exactly. Or you can go play pickup and be LeBron. Um, what? Uh, all right, lastly, what what are we looking for? It's you know it's late July, so we've got some. Uh, we still have some some revelations yeah, in the think, plot. Yeah, what think are we thinking? We are, I think we're thinking that it's going to be uh, you know obviously the men, the top guys are going to you know they're abiding their time to you know they've all pulled out of. Uh, Canada already, or Djokovic and Federer. Right. So you're just going to see them just sort of getting themselves ready for the Open. And, you know, it's to me, it's still this exact same still, question. Uh, three, yeah, can, three can horse race yeah, on the men's can, side. Can anybody else step up? <laughs> right. You know, is anyone going to break through? Is Medvedev or Hatchinoff or Sissipas? You know, is anybody when you go? I don't see it. Best you know, five. at this point, best of five at the Open is tricky. It's hot. You know, it's well, actually, it's not as windy as it used to be, which to me has made the quality of play better. You know, we talked the heat's been an I- issue now. With the roof, there's basically no wind inside right. Arthur Ashe Stadium. Right. So that, to me, is a uh, it has some impact. I think that you see less upsets. And these, and these guys are only playing. And they're only playing at night or, right. or there. And for the women, it's, you know, the same old story. Can, you know, can Serena get over her nerves in the, in the final? I mean, if, it's not like Serena's not playing well enough to, no, to win majors. Ja- Jamie was yeah. very quick to this. Yeah, Ner- nerves, right? Yeah, 37 years old, 23 nerves. majors, Completely and it's nerves. nerves. Yeah. yeah, because she wants it that badly. And unlike other great players, when she gets tight, her level goes exponentially down. Like, and for just some reason, she can— Well, there's a history there, right? Yeah, but, I mean, she just hit the ball, literally the normal ball in the bottom of the net. Um. It's so funny you mentioned that. But the fact that she's played six tournaments since six majors since the baby, and she's been in three finals. So obviously she's playing well enough to to right. win. There's no doubt. But you know she's never lost three straight finals before. Well, she's never had, um, had a baby before. Yeah, either. exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, the, I I wonder if she if she had to do it again. Right. She says, I don't give a shit about Margaret Court. I'm just here. I love the sport. I'm out here until I enjoy it. I've got nothing left to prove. And 
she sort of made this an issue, which she rarely mm. does. Mm. But yeah. she she made it a priority. To she wants the record. To, to, she yeah. wants this record. I wonder if that wasn't a put a little more pressure on her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. I mean, she's always struck me as sort of saying what she. I mean, she's honest, but she doesn't. She's not. She's honest, but she's not always honest. You know, so there's always that mystery about her, which right. I think is what makes her interesting. That you know, you never quite know what she's really thinking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, this is great. Thank thanks, you, man. Uh, thanks for thanks having for me. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Yeah. Can you, will you, pay, for my, will you time, pay for, for my God's parking? Sake. Yeah, it was a 19 bucks. 19 here, bucks. Spot take, here. Take my corporate card. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming in. That was we'll fun. See you, see you at the open. All right. Thanks to Pat McEnroe for uh, coming by. Got to do more in studio guests. Just a different vibe. Um, happy to spring for lunch. Jamie, let us free you from your producing duties and bring you in. Uh, had you met Patrick before? I had not. He. We text message and he butt dialed me a few times <laughs> in setting up this podcast. But before that, we had not spoken. Happens to the best of us. <laughs> I stand by what I said. I'm glad I'm glad he came. We were talking about doing this for a while. And um, he moved out to, uh, we used to live uh, quite near each other. Now he moved to the suburbs. So good to uh, give him an excuse to come into Manhattan. Um, glad to talk shop with him. But I do stand by what I said before, which is I don't think many people think of him necessarily as John McEnroe's little brother i mean i, I don't think uh people necessarily twin them together and they, they play it up sometimes on the broadcast and the McEnroe brothers are going to call the match but uh i give him an awful lot of credit for carving his own identity i can't imagine it's easy to be seven years younger than a brother who is that prominent and for a while anyway was that polarizing and to have carved such a distinct identity um anyway um thoughts jamie I, uh, I thought it was great to have an in-studio guest. I agree with that. Um, it's always nice to have someone sitting next to me on the side of the table. Interesting what he said about Federer, uh, that he said you reminded him of what he said during that match, that sort of this was a really pivotal moment. And I think when he said and he referred back to the matches where we're like, all right, well, this is going to be it. And then Federer right. goes and proves us wrong. I, I, think, I think we're still seeing that point with him. Like, I don't think that this match and, and this year is like this big turning point for Federer. Um, I, I don't think we're seeing that. I think it cuts both ways. I mean, it's funny because I think we, there have been matches played since then. There's been a Tennis Hall of Fame induction ceremony, but I still think that fans are processing this match. And on the one hand, you say, boy, Federer came close and that was disappointing, but, you know, he's got 20 of these and the plot keeps moving and there's a major coming up in a few weeks and he has another chance then. I do think there are also people saying, boy, this was his last best chance to win a major. He talks about how his year peaks for grass. It was all set up. He caught Djokovic on a day when Djokovic wasn't necessarily at his best, and he just couldn't do it. And now it's getting really, really hard to keep defending the Federer position at some level. And that there's a sense that Djokovic is climbing the ranks and is considerably younger. And I, I do feel like, and this is just sort of moderating these texts and these questions that I get, I do, I do feel like there's a bit of a shift. And uh, in this great GOAT debate that has captivated tennis, this does seem like that was a turning point. But um, we'll see. Um, I want to ask you about Coco Goff because I feel as though I am not entirely sure what to think. I do think that people who are talented and skilled generally deserve to uh, be able to apply those talents and skills and make a living. I also feel like this rule is put in for a reason and it's well-intentioned um i mean one thing that i 
do think changes the equation a little bit is just that these careers are so long these days, which is a great thing, that when, you know, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, when we were talking about Jennifer Capriati, we were talking even about Mar Martina Hingis, there was a sense of, boy, you really need to make hay while you can because by the time you're 24, 25 years old, you're on the downside. Even John McEnroe didn't win a major after he was 25. Now I feel like you got 20 years, so there isn't necessarily the urgency. Again, that's that's a great thing, but I think that's all the more reason to put some guardrails on and avoid burnout, avoid physical burnout, and I think these rules are well-intentioned. I don't think there's an ulterior motive other than protecting kids, and it's at some level protecting the tour and the brand. It's not great for the sport or for the WTA when Jennifer Capriati's rebelling as, as a teenager and has gotten eaten up by the system a little bit. I, I don't think there's uh, sort of dark forces. I think this is all well-intentioned. And I kind of am of the opinion that uh, we ought to be abiding by these. And Coco Goff seems to be a stable situation. I don't think her parents are using her as an ATM. And I don't think there's some of the, uh, the forces that were there. If you heard Mary Pierce's induction speech at the Hall of Fame, I, I don't think this is a situation like that with Coco Goff. But at the same time, I think that you got 20 years to make your keep, and uh, why not limit the kid? I, I don't think anyone gains by challenging these rules. But I, but I admit to uh, being a bit torn here. Do you, do you have thoughts? Do you? I, I we never really got to talk about her after Wimbledon. I don't know. Kind of slipped slipped through. But were you were you shocked by how many matches and how far she went? Did you think that she was? kind of on the brink because for me I feel like we'd heard about her mm -hmm. and uh you know we knew that one day she'd be great right I feel like that's sort of the uh common thing that comes out of you know U.S. tennis circles when you've got these young teenagers but for me it seemed like she really just like caught fire and in the way that women's tennis is right now with a new number one Every, every so often, every so quarter, every major, we have someone new and we have kind of some new major winners every once in a while. It seems like if she catches fire and she keeps on rolling, I mean, she really could keep going and, and really make a huge jump. And for me, that when you talk about burnout and everything, I think the one thing that sort of hit Naomi Osaka, and, and she was in a much different space. She had been right, kind of right. climbing up the tour, was that... All of a sudden, it was sponsors and, and media and all of this stuff that comes along with the ride. And I, I do think that at one point that kind of affected her and she lost early and she got to take a step back and kind of just hide away where no one no one talked to her or talked about her. And I think that helped her. And so I, I worry that about that kind of burnout more so than the, the tennis burnout per se. Yeah, physically. I mean, I, I think... Um it's a really physical sport, and you know, Bianca Andreescu has a great Indian Wells, and it looks like we're going to mint a new champion, this Canadian right. teenager, and then she has this shoulder injury and hasn't been the same player since. Um, it's almost like the – it sort of is blinding, right? The success is like you, you keep pushing, and you have a little tweak or you have a little pain, and it's like, oh, I, I have the ability to do this amazing thing. I'm so young. I'm just going to keep going, 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 and then all of a sudden – shoulder injury right. or whatever whatever that injury is so yeah i mean i think it's it's definitely possible yeah no i mean i'm saying i, I think your point's well taken about osaka i mean I, I worry about the physical as well as the burnout and being spread too thin the commitments and i i think it's a combination i, I just, just think th mentally that's a huge yeah mm -hmm. that that's as as bearing as a 
as a physical right. grind. And I think we, we've all seen this movie, and you, you come out, and it's shiny and exciting, and the first time you ride in the back of a limo, it's really cool, and the first time you're in a green room of a morning show, it's really cool, and it doesn't take that long before any of that allure wears off and it becomes a burden. And, you know, you, you can train, you can, you can hit a million forehands, and you can work on your overhead, but there's really no preparation for that moment when your agent's telling you you've, you've got to, uh, they'll, they'll send a private plane, but you've got to be at the photo shoot in Martinique. Uh, it can be really exhausting. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're in the media. We bear some responsibility as well. I, I feel very torn about this Coco Goff. I mean, at some level, it's dishonest not to talk about her skills and her accomplishments. She qualified and then won another three main draw matches. I mean, it would, it would almost be malpractice not to talk excitedly about her. And at the same time, we need to give her some space and we need to see how this pans out. And she had a very nice Wimbledon, but then she played a step up. You know, she played a quality opponent in Simona Hollop and looked like a 16 year old playing against the Wimbledon champion, that there was still room. And I think that uh, we all need to sort of balance the fact that there's this very exciting, clearly very talented teenage player, but also where Sloan Stevens said it really well. Like she's a talented kid, but she's still a kid. And uh, that's I, I think that really resonated with me. So um, anyway, my, my point is I suspect these rules could be challenged and they, they do seem counter to a certain free market uh, American way. But I think they're there for the right reasons and we should probably respect them. I, uh, I read something interesting yesterday um, in The Washington Post. Madison Keys talked about Coco Golf and she said that it made her reflect back on, on her career and, and reignited something in her to look back and be grateful for what she has. But also, um, you know, she said, I, I lost it a little bit. Like when you're, when you're doing something for so long, you kind of lose that, that passion in a way. So it's interesting. Uh, it was interesting for me to read, um, to read that from her and, and see how someone like Coco Goff being so young and carefree and she comes in, she just does all this stuff can, actually really does affect the rest of the players i mean madison keys not that old not that you know hasn't ha, has been on tour for a long time right. but she's not that old uh so i don't know i thought it was yeah i, I think everyone that, i think everyone sort of played this game with coco goff of boy when i was that age i was blank or you know the williams sisters already had put together hall of fame credentials when coco goff was born i think everybody sort of you know, tran transpose that and put themselves in, in her shoes. I mean, again, to me, the big variable in this, and I think it's something that's great for tennis. I think this is a really positive trend, but I think the fact that we don't need these teenage phenoms anymore, and you can have a period. I mean, Madison Keys has had some ups and downs. We were talking before with Patrick. Djokovic had a basically a two-year sabbatical where he wasn't nearly the player that he was, and he recovered from that. He's still only in his early 30s, and he's, he's off and running. So I think that um, this whole element of burnout, I think, is, is really it's um, diminished a bit when these careers go into their 30s. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll see how Coco Goff did. She obviously qualified in D.C. Uh, as we record this, she's about to take the court. She did win her first round in doubles, I believe. Um, but we'll see. So anyway, that's uh, another storyline to follow this summer. And uh, I want to thank Patrick for coming in. We'll pay for his parking. Um, thanks, Jamie, for uh, for setting that up. Always good to have an in-studio guest. And I'm on the road next week, but we'll figure something out. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Patrick for coming down. Thanks to Jamie for her expert producing and her, uh, her opinions, as always. And um, we'll have another guest next week. All right. Have a good week, everyone.